like to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to Job chapter 22. Job's kind of right in the middle of the Bible, right before Psalms. Job 22, that's on page 431 of the ESV Pew Bibles. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 30, so the entire chapter. This is part of our ongoing series through the book of Job, God and Suffering. The title is Hang On Tight. The bulletin says, Hold On Tight. You can take your pick. It's either one. It's Hang On Tight, Hold On Tight. But we're going to be looking at the entire chapter. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we come before you in in anxiousness. We, We come before you expectantly. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Help us to hear it and apply it. Lord, we want to be shown the true meaning of this passage, and we want to understand it. So please answer that prayer. We ask it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, there was a man driving through a winter snowstorm, and he was driving his Jeep. And this was not a modern, leather-trimmed, automatic, four-wheel drive, push-to-start touchscreen. This was one of the old CJ7s. He had modified it extensively. The dash was essentially a piece of sheet metal with some analog gauges. And he, he prided himself on being able to get out in these winter storms when no one else could. But, uh, as would happen, he, in his confidence, was going too fast along one of these state highways, and it was icy, and of course ice doesn't um, particularly care if it's a four-wheel drive vehicle or not, and he lost control. And he started heading towards the edge of the road, and he he caught his tire, and it, it started to roll and roll and roll and roll and roll, and it finally came to a stop. And when it did finally come to rest, he opened his eyes because he had closed them and he took inventory and he realized he was on his side and there was snow below him and he could see starry night above him. And then the second thing he realized was, I'm okay, I'm alive. And other than being tossed around and a couple of uh, you know, bruises and, and joints out of place, he felt fine. And so he walked away from it. And in the next couple of days and weeks, as he, as he encountered his friends, they all wanted to hear the story of how his accident went. And he told the details a little bit differently each time, but one thing stayed the same. When he got to the end, when he got to the part where it started to roll, he said, I couldn't do anything. All I could do was hang on tight. He said, that's all I could do. He, he, he hung onto the steering wheel and he, he tucked himself in and, and closed his eyes and just held on as tight as he could because he knew that the roll bar in place was, was meant to, and designed to, to protect him. That's what it was there for. In case he rolled, the roll bar would hit the ground instead of his head. And it worked. It protected him. All he could do was hang on tight. In chapter 22, Job is on the receiving end of Eliphaz and his final words. And Eliphaz pulls out 
what is probably the biggest gun in his arsenal and lets Job have it. And all Job can do as he's hearing these words is hold on tight. Eliphaz's weapon is a weapon that Satan has used from the beginning. It's still used today. And it's a weapon that is used repeatedly at the church. And like Job, all we can do is hold on tight. Because we can't stop Satan from his attacks. Indeed, that's not even our job. We're not not able to. We're not supposed to. We can't. We have to hang on tight until the vehicle comes to a stop. So as we read this passage this morning, see if you can identify what Eliphaz is using against Job and what Satan still uses against us today. Listen carefully. So here it is, chapter 22, 1 through 30. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Is not God high in the heavens? See the starry highest stars, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, Surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has consumed. Agree with God, and be at peace, Therefore, thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth, and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust, and the gold of a fear among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty, and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him, and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter, and it will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. So we have crossed the halfway mark through the book of Job. It's 42 chapters, and here we are in 22. So we're we're over halfway, just barely, and this is the third and final round of, of dialogue, of speeches. Uh, this time we have uh, Eliphaz and um, Bildad, but Zophar is done. Remember, he, he was done last uh, in the last chapter there, last couple chapters. So here we have Eliphaz, and this is his final speech to Job, but he's not holding anything back. 
verses 1 through 3, uh, this, this is a little bit cryptic. It is a little bit difficult to understand. But what he's essentially saying here to Job is, Job, you have to be the problem. You're the problem here. Um, your goodness or wickedness only impacts you. That's when he says, can a man be profitable to God? Eliphaz is saying, when, when a man acts either wickedly or righteously, does that have any impact on God, on his state, on his existence? And of course, the answer is no. God is perfectly holy and unchangeable. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right or if it is gain to him? In other words, does your, your goodness or your wickedness have any bearing on what happens to God? And the answer, of course, is no, it doesn't. Therefore, it only affects you, Job. And we can see where he's going this, with this. He's saying, so since you're receiving all this, since you're on the receiving end of all this suffering, therefore, it must be because you have brought it upon yourself. Verse 4, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters judgment with you? Again, it's a rhetorical question. And Eliphaz is asking, um, is God punishing you for being good? Is that what's going on? He's sarcastically mocking him. No, your wickedness brings judgment on your head. That's what he's, he's trying to tell him. Verse 5, is it because your evil is abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. And, and then we transition in verse 6 through 11. So right at that point, we get into a series of false accusations. A series of false accusations. Eliphaz is so determined to paint Job as an evil man that he makes things up. None of these things are true. Verse 6, you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. Now in the ancient, excuse me, in the ancient Near East, the poor could offer their, their cloak as a pledge for payment. But common decency and, and the, the understood um, norm of society was that the creditor would return the cloak at night so the person could sleep in it because it got cold at night and they didn't have lots of nice things. After all, this person is, is poor. That's why he's offering the cloak as a pledge to begin with. In fact, Mosaic Law commanded that a cloak be given in pledge be returned at sundown, Exodus 22. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is the only, his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? So Eliphaz is accusing Job, first of all, of, of taking a cloak and pledge for nothing, for no good reason. And then he, he's also accusing him of not giving it back to him at night. Verse 7, Job is accused of willfully withholding food and water from those that need it the most. Has he done this? No. Verse 8 and 9, Job is accused of being a rich, powerful man who should have acted compassionately towards others, but instead he says, sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless, meaning orphans, crushed. He's, he's mocking Job. He's giving him that, that line saying, oh, big Job, tough guy. Does that, does that make you feel good to beat up on women and children? Good job, Job. He's attacking his character by making up lies. Remember, Job hasn't done any of this. None of it. Verses 10 and 11, Therefore, since you have done all this, this is why the snares are all around you. 
This is why suddenly terror overwhelms you in darkness and in a flood. That's all judgment language. Verses uh, 12 through, through 14, you can't hide from God. First, Eliphaz points out God's position. He is, he is in the heavens above. He, he can see all things. Is not God high? See the highest stars? And then in 13 and 14, he says, um, but you say, Eliphaz says to Job, in other words, he's putting words in Job's mouth, but you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him. So Eliphaz, once again, is painting Job as this wicked man who thinks he can get away with it because God will not find him out. God is too distant. Verse 15, are you going to continue to go down this road? Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have tried? He's asking Job, he's confronting Job, are you you really sure you want to keep going in this direction? Are you sure you're not going to agree with me? Aren't you going to come around and admit your guilt? Instead, you're going to keep walking in this direction. We both know where that leads. Verse 16, God cuts them off. God snatches them up before it's time. You're a wicked man, Job. And you're following the wicked road that all other wicked men have tried. Verse 17, then they said to God, depart from us and what can the Almighty do? Look what he's doing now. Uh, Sharp observers will notice that those exact words were spoken by Job in chapter 21. Job 21, 14, they say to God, depart from us. Remember we looked at that and we said that's one of the identifying markers that allows us to uh, positively ID between believers and unbelievers. The, the, The unbelieving person, the wicked person, wants to be far from God, not near. And here, Eliphaz is turning it around and and using it on Job. Hmm. Verse 18, this is your your attitude towards God, Job, even though he has filled your house with good things. And then he uses his words against him again. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Did you notice that? Job 21, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Again, the exact same words. He's he's parroting back Job's words to himself, but he's flipped it around so that Eliphaz is the one in the right, and Job's the wicked man who is trying to, to keep God far from him. The righteous see it and are glad. The righteous see the wicked cut off and their lives cut short and the judgment fall upon him and they're glad. And again, this is a life as saying, this is what other people are saying to you, Job. They're glad that all this has happened to you. They're, they're mocking you behind your back because they see all the calamity that has come upon you. And then the solution. Verse 21. Agree with God, be at peace, thereby good will come to you. Stop walking down this wicked road, Job. Stop stop following in the path that, that the wicked men have gone. You have to get right with God. You have to agree with God. The ESV says agree. NIV says submit to God. Uh, NASB says be reconciled. Some would say come to terms. But we, we get the, the meaning, the sense of that. He's saying you need to turn around and get right with God. If you turn from your wickedness, then good things will come to you. And then verses 22 through 28 all amplify this message that says if you turn, then good things will happen. 
Um, receive instruction from your mouth. That means adopt a teachable spirit. Lay up his words in your heart. In other words, submit to his commandments and obey them. If you remove injustice, then you will be, you will be built up. If you lay gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir, that was, uh, the gold of Ophir was uh, known in the ancient Near East as, as the best, the best gold, some of the highest quality. If you take these things, which were idols, money, accumulating wealth, gold, and you throw them in the dust or among the stones of the torrent bed, then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Your shame will be removed. We've talked about that before as we've gone through this series, to lift up, to have your face lifted up, to remove your shame, to have your reputation restored. Then you will pray and he will answer you. Then you will pay your vows. Vows were sometimes made by people as they were offering up a prayer, kind of an if-then thing. If you answer my prayer, Lord, then I will do this, fill in the blank, make a sacrifice, uh, do something. So when God answers those types of prayers, then the person that made them is obligated to follow up on their vows. So what he's saying is if you turn around, Job, your prayers are going to be answered, you're going to be fulfilling your vows, which means you're going to have a lot of answered prayer if you turn around. Light or success will shine on your ways. And then these last two verses are both talking, verses 29 and 30 are both talking about how Job will function as an intercessor for sinners if he turns back to Job. So the Hebrew word for pride can also mean lifted up as an exclamation. And you'll even see that in the footnote. The ESV's got a footnote there. It says, um, or you say, is it, it is exaltation. But if we look at all three of these, here's the ESV uh, along with the NIV and the NET. I hate to say it, but I, I think the ESV actually didn't do a, a, an excellent job on this verse. I think the others more accurately represent what's going on here because the ESV says, for when they are humbled, you say, is it, it is because of pride. Well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? That's kind of confusing. When they're humbled, you say it is because of pride. Well, pride doesn't make you humble. Pride makes you prideful. So that, that doesn't really go together. But if you look at the other two translations, it's a better fit. When people are brought low and you say lift them up, then he will save the downcast. The idea here is that as Job offers up prayers for people, they will be heard by God and they will be lifted up. And this matches the next verse, which is also talking about intercessory prayer. It says, he delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Now, I don't want us to miss the foreshadowing irony of verse 30, because verse 30 is exactly what Job does. When we get to chapter 42, if you remember, God shows up, he sets everything right, and he instructs Job to pray for his three friends who did not speak rightly about God. And Job prays on their behalf, and God forgives them. So as Eliphaz is making his, his speech to Job, he's actually foreshadowing what happens at the end, except it's Job <laughs> doing the prayer for Eliphaz and not the other way around. Hang on tight. What, what is Eliphaz saying to Job in this chapter? This is his last chance to speak. This is it. 
and he lets him have it. We could break it down like this. Eliphaz accuses Job of sin that he did not commit. He falsely assumes to know what's in Job's heart and mind, and he wrongly calls Job to repentance. And the thing is, none of it is true. None of it. And Eliphaz must know he's making it up. He must, in his heart. Eliphaz must know that he doesn't have any proof that that Job has withheld bread from the hungry or exacted pledges for nothing. He never heard Job say, um, uh, what does God know? And think that he uh, wasn't even able to see him by God because God couldn't see him through thick darkness. None of that's true. Eliphaz doesn't have any proof, yet he made the accusations. Why did he do that? Why would he, why would he make things up like that? Eliphaz wants Job to adopt his worldview. If, if you've been along for the journey this whole time, you know that that's what the three friends have been doing all along. They have been pressuring Job to abandon this idea that he's somehow blameless and, and walking upright before God and accept their worldview that says there is no such thing as undeserved suffering. Face it, Job, we're right, you're wrong, we know how things work in the world, you've got it all mixed up, so just agree with us and come out with it, confess your sin, and then we can all move on and everything will be okay. That's what they've been trying to do this whole time. So Eliphaz has resorted to flat-out lying. He hasn't been able to convince Job through legitimate argumentation, so he abandons the truth and introduces a false narrative. A false narrative. That's the tool that Satan's been using from the beginning. That's the tool that is still around today, and that's the tool that we see in chapter 22. It's a false narrative. What is a narrative? I like Scott David Allen's definition from why social justice is not biblical justice. He says, narratives are man-made stories that purport to describe reality but are agenda-driven. I think that's a pretty solid definition of what a narrative is. And that's exactly what a life has is doing here. A life has is a man, and he's making up a story that he says accurately describes Job, and he does so because he has an agenda. That's exactly what's going on here. Here's the narrative. Job is a wicked man who takes advantage of widows and children. Job is driven by an insatiable and idolatrous desire for money and wealth and power and gold, and he tramples on the poor and says to himself, God does not see me. That's the narrative. That's the man-made story. Here's the agenda. He wants Job to agree with and adopt his worldview. And he wants it so bad that he's willing to abandon truth and insert just pure fabricated lies. He's resorted to a false narrative. But Job will not do that. Job will not go along with the false narrative because he knows that everything that life has has said about him is a lie. And Job refuses to let go to the truth. Job is committed to holding on tight to the truth. 
Now, we might find a, people here, a few people here this morning who've, who've been in a similar situation. Maybe at some point in your life, you've had that experience of an enemy that has, has thrust a narrative upon you. Uh, maybe they've made something up about you that's not true. They're spreading lies about you because they are after some sort of agenda. But it's usually not a daily occurrence on a personal level. It happens, but not that often. In contrast... Satan uses large-scale false narratives all the time. And in fact, we can see it happening all around us. Here's, here's that definition again of a narrative. That should look pretty familiar in, in, in terms of matching up what we see around us. Here's what maybe a large-scale cultural narrative could be described as. So here it is, the definition nuanced a little bit. Agenda-driven lies told repeatedly and presented in a variety of formats and contexts designed to manipulate the majority of a society to accept and apply a particular worldview or false reality. It's a fancy way of saying lies that people tell to get what they want. Lies that people tell to get what they want. And you could probably think of several large-scale narratives that are currently being pushed. Man-made stories that purport to describe reality but are agenda-driven in their lives. Here's, as we hang on tight as a church, here's what we need to understand. It's extremely important because a lot of people will get halfway. A lot of people will say, yeah, I see that. I, I see false narratives in the world today. I get it. But then they don't make the second jump. And here's the second jump, and this is what's so important. The large-scale narratives that are being pushed in our culture today are satanic. They are satanic. Somebody might push back and say, oh, I get it, okay. You're one of those guys that sees the devil hiding behind every tree, or you, you spill your coffee and you think a demon did it. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the false narratives that are being driven today in our culture are satanic. And here's why we know they're satanic. We know they're satanic by two hallmark characteristics. Number one, the false man-made realities that these narratives put forth are diametrically opposed to the truth of God. That's the first hallmark. They're, they're 100% opposite in going in the other direction. That's number one. And number two, the agenda that is driving them is to get as many people as possible to believe a lie, rebel against God, and practice sin. When you see those two things, that means it's satanic. That means he's behind it. Look at the fall. What, what happened at the fall in the garden? Well, we've got Satan. Making up a story, telling a lie. You will not surely die. No. I know God said that, but that, no, no, that's not going to happen. Instead, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. It's, a, it's an alternate reality, and it's driven by an agenda. What was the agenda? To introduce sin into humanity. And to cause God's image bearers, the pinnacle of his creation, to believe a lie, rebel against him, and sin. That was satanic, so are false narratives that 
have those two hallmark characteristics. Satan is the father of lies when the, he, meaning the devil, lies. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He was the first one to introduce the lie in the gardens. He's the father of lies. It's the way he operates. He continues to operate. Now, the people who push and drive these false narratives, those who write them, who speak them, who publish them, who broadcast them, they don't have to be demon-possessed. They simply have to be unbelievers under Satan's influence. And Scripture gives us evidence of how unbelievers under Satan's influence carry out the will of the devil. Paul, when talking about uh, opponents to the gospel and false teachers and how the church should respond to them, says this in 2 Timothy. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's part of the world system. It, just as a general rule, the world is under the general control of Satan. Satan is active, he's the prince of this world, and it's under his general control. So I want us to understand this before we move on. The narratives that are being pushed are not spiritually benign. They're not spiritually neutral. They're not just opposing ideas. They're not simply a different opinion about how we should run things or how we should live. That's not it at all. They're satanic. They're lies. And they're driven by Satan's agenda. Here's his agenda. To destroy God's good created order and bring as many people to hell as possible. That's the agenda. That's behind and driving these narratives. Well, what are we to do? What's our response to this? Hang on tight. Hang on tight. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 18, for this purpose I was born and for this reason I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. We were created to live by the truth, to know the truth, to tell the truth, to apply the truth. I think it is an obvious understatement to say that the truth is important and that we're called to hang tight to it. Now, Lord willing, we'll look at Job 23 next week. And when we do, we're going to see Job's response to life as, and his response to this false narrative is to hang on tight to the truth. He did not jump ship. Job did not abandon the truth. In fact, really, this, this whole book is describing how Job, to the end, hangs on to the truth. And he does so with commendable resiliency. He has three friends that have been coming at him from all these different angles for the entire time, and he hangs on tight to the truth. I want to touch on a few truths that I hope we will find equipping so you can hang tight to the truth in a day and age when the church is bombarded by false narratives. Bombarded. Now, I am preaching to the choir. I know you know this. But like Job, an important part of his journey was to hang on tight to the end. That's also an important part of our journey. We must hang on tight to the end. And when someone lets go, 
of some of these truths of God? It's like cancer. It spreads. I remember talking with someone who I believed at the time was a believer, and they started talking about some things that I knew were false, and they started, it became evident to me that they were letting go of some of these truths, at least two of them, maybe more. And I, I thought, hmm, that's really uncharacteristic of this person. I thought they were a believer. They're professing to be a believer. And as we kept going, I, I used this illustration of, of, of cancer, how, how false teaching is like cancer in a person's life, in a church, in a local church. Once it starts, it can only grow from there. And it's very difficult to, to excise it. And they misunderstood me. They became very offended. And they thought I was calling them cancerous. And I said, no, 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 please hear me. You're not a cancerous growth. I said, you, I, I love, with the love of Christ, and I'm praying for you, that false teaching that you've adopted and you're telling me you now believe, that, that's the cancer. And I'm praying for you that you would abandon it and come back to the truth. So the reason we're going over some of these, even though we know them, is so that we can hold on to the truth. Because, brothers and sisters, we are being bombarded by a satanic narrative every day. So apply these as necessary when you encounter a satanic false narrative. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. We were created male and female. There are only two genders. God assigns each person a gender, and they remain that same gender from birth to eternity. Gender is binary and unchangeable. Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. 1 Corinthians 11.8, For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Men and women are created equal, but different. Men and women are not interchangeable in their God-given attributes, roles, and responsibilities. God has created man to be the head, and woman was created for man to be his helper. Neither gender is superior. Neither gender is inferior. Men and women will always be equal in their personhood, but they will never be the same. And we are to joyfully embrace and live out our lives as God has created us. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is a lifelong covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. Any type of partnership or union other than that is not marriage. Deuteronomy 22.5, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. In 1 Corinthians 11.14, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Men and women are to dress and present themselves according to the gender that God has assigned to them. Men and women are not to intentionally dress or present themselves as the opposite gender in any way or seek to erase or minimize the differences between male and female. 
Jeremiah 1.5, before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. A person's life begins at conception, and any abortion is murder. Romans 1.26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Outward homosexual behavior and inward homosexual desires are sinful. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Personal guilt for sin cannot be passed from one person to another. It is impossible for a person to inherit the sin of someone else. It is impossible for a person to inherit the sin of another group of people. It is impossible for a person to inherit the sins of their ancestors. It is impossible for a person to be guilty of a sin simply because they belong to a particular people group or a particular demographic. And you do not need to repent for a sin or for sins that you have not personally committed. Leviticus 19.15 you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Justice is about impartially rendering judgment and assigning and issuing reward or punishment is reserved for God and for God's authorities that he has entrusted with uh, judgment, including parents in the home, elders in the church, and civil authorities of the state. Justice does not mean that all people must be viewed as either an oppressor or someone who is oppressed. Ultimate justice is reserved for God alone, which means not all things will be justly resolved in this life but all people will receive God's perfect justice for eternity. There are several false narratives that are being pushed in the world today. They are lies from the enemy, they are satanic, and the enemy wants as many people as possible to yield, to give up and give in, and to let go of the truth. Like the Jeep rolling over and over and over and over in the snow. This is happening. We can't do anything to stop it. And it's not our job to stop it. It's not our job to silence the ones promoting, broadcasting, writing, publishing, and speaking these lies. We simply have to hang on tight to the truth. That is what Job did. He couldn't control what came out of their mouths but yet he held on tightly to the end. That's simply what we're called to do, is to hold on tight until the end, until the rolling jeep, meaning 
the world system and everything in it, time elapsing until Christ returns comes to a rest. At that point, God will silence all lies and God will silence all false narratives. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that sometimes we grow weary to the point of grumbling of the way things are in the world. We confess that sometimes we, we vent anger and think evil thoughts about those we perceive are our enemies. Father, you, you've made it very clear to us. We, we are not to, to go on the offensive in the, in, with the goal of trying to silence our enemies. Father, that is not our job. You can handle that. Our task is to hold on tightly to your truth. Father, we look forward to Christ's return. We look forward to the day when the skies depart and the Son of God descends. And until then, we ask that you would give us the boldness and the ability to hold on tightly to your truth. Amen.